the Oscars often get it wrong, but boy, did they get it wrong this year. I thought the production levels of this show were lame. I thought the dresses were disappointing. It was lame. Danae Guerrero, who's in Black Panther, she looked absolutely beautiful. Carol, you're going to accuse me of being Hawthorne biased here because it was a dark gold fabric with a brown trim, which actually, as I'm describing it, sounds bloody shocking, like the Hawthorne football jumper, but it did really, really work for me. Your name and shame, or you don't write about it at all. I don't like this, who is the, you know, unnamed gent, or who is the, you know, those sort of, Yeah. I don't like it. The core ethics of good journalism, among other things, are accuracy, telling the truth and being fair, right? So is it possible to do an ethical gossip column? That's the question. If you say you have mental health issues, you don't get a strike ahead of you. The AFL has sold this new policy on the fact that it's two strikes, not three, so it looks tougher. In fact, it's a lot more lenient. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. And welcome, everybody, to episode 74 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. Corrie Perkin, my dear friend. Hello, my dear friend. I feel as though it's been a year since I last saw you, but here we are again. Well, it's funny, Caro, isn't it? Hello, potties. When we have we do an episode of this and then for some reason we don't see each other until the next episode, thank God we have an agenda I've... because there's so much to discuss. And what an agenda it has been. The Oscars have come and gone. Boy, oh boy, I am... I have a very firm view on the Oscars, but we'll come to that in a moment. Um, we've had a huge uh, response to our guest from last week, who you organised, Corrie, Jane Caro, who came in to talk about her book, The Accidental Feminist. Um, Kirsten Fox, thanks, Kirsten, on Facebook. Fabulous episode, ladies, Jane Caro. Always wonderful, so insightful, passionate and intelligent. Love this lady. She thought we did a great job. I had a lot of personal feedback. There were a few people who felt they wanted more solutions from Jane, as well as poses. But I must say that when you actually finish the book, she does offer quite a few solutions. She does. And I think that's the trick, actually, of a good interview, Caro. She didn't give too much away. She kept us wanting more so people have to come buy and the she, book. We did ask her about solutions and she offered some. And, you know, our very own Miss Jane went home and checked her super balance. So, I mean, she's, she's but, done some good. Yeah, there's some good. But uh, good on you, Janie. I hope there's lots in there and lots more to come. We don't want to be one of those poor old 85-year-old women. But, Caro, wasn't it interesting when we were talking about the Gruen factor and the Gruen transfer and she said it had been five years since she had been on that most terrific ABC show. What's that about? They haven't and they, asked and they her And they haven't back. asked her back, so clearly she's open for it. I reckon somebody, give her a gig. Give her a gig with a couple of women like you and I, but give her a gig where she is, you know, in the hot seat of the host May, Maybe the it was because she, not that she outshines the two main characters, the two main hosts... In Todd well, you know, and well, Russell. one could say that she took it right up to them. But, but I mean, maybe she just seems to have a bigger presence than a lot of the other special guests. Anyway, um, look, Jane Barrington got in touch with us too. She loved our recommendation, well, my recommendation, because I've become the film goer, you've become the book reader. Um, that's um, all going to change once it, this wedding's over, Caroline Wilson. Well, I hope so, Corrie. No, well, I mean, I've been reading voraciously too, but of course you, by your very nature, seem to read more books than me. But she loved Vice and she agreed wholeheartedly that it was a great movie, scary. But she did say the Athenaeum Cinema where she saw it squished us all into Tiny Cinema 3 and that the fat man with the heavy breathing next to her ate his way through a whole very noisy packet of sweets. So she wasn't happy about that. Uh, Virginia, Even fatter man now. Lovely Virginia Miller. 
Miller, who um, has been backpacking solo around the globe, enjoyed listening to us. So that's pretty fantastic. I'm pretty happy about that and happy with the way communication and travel has changed. Justin Unwin and our friend Sarah Brockoff. Justin Irwin. Can I just... Irwin. Sorry, Justin Irwin. Justin is one of our... How could you, you possibly are... forget sorry, how, Justin. what his name is? He's one of our favourite correspondence. And he loved my slow roasted or my friend Joe's slow roasted tomatoes. And Sarah Brockoff loved them so much she posted a picture and they looked exactly like mine do Sarah. So we're doing something right, Sarah Brockoff. Um, Justin loved them with barbecued Atlantic salmon and quinoa. Remember, Corrie, this is a recipe with really, you do add goat's feta, goat's cheese or feta and a bit of basil in the last half hour of slow cooking. But apart from that, it's Roma tomatoes and sweet chilli sauce. Yeah, and not too much easiest. sweet chilli sauce. You reminded us just the other day. Just a drop. Just, just drizzle. But uh, I think Miss Jane is going to pop Sarah Brockoff's uh, lovely photograph on Facebook, aren't you, Janie? And have you got anything else to say, Jane? Any housekeeping or anything that you need no, to tell us about? No, she's got some housekeeping later. <laughs> she can remain silent for the moment. Corrie, now I continue to say that our goals of the month should have been switched. I should have been doing the walking and you should have been doing the not shopping because as we know, I broke my vow last week and bought a pale pink raincoat. However... Which you do on a 37 degree... Well, it wasn't the day, day I bought it and trust me, when it's raining in July, I'll be the smug one. However... I've been good this and week. And rather smart too. People I, will go, oh, there she is in a pink raincoat. It's going to look fantastic at the MCG. Well, you've broken, you've broken your goal of but I, I haven't broken, to do no shopping. I haven't broken it again though, so I've sort of been pretty good. What about <laughs> Don't you? Don't try and get out of it. You've broken it. You're stuffed. Well, well your, your, your K's were looking a bit lame last no, time I well, checked No, my, well, my K's uh, last week, I'm, well, as everyone knows, I keep getting it mixed up. I think it's my maths, but I've got to do basically 32 K's a week. And last week I got up to 29.1. And then I had the weekend uh, up in the country where we didn't do a lot of walking, more um, preparing for the wedding and a bit of planting. So there wasn't a lot of walking going on. So this morning, Caro, at 20 past five, I jumped out of bed before our podcast. And, and I've walked done, here. I've done 4.7 Ks this morning and then I'm going to walk to work. But it's really funny when you set yourself this target, and this is a really good tip for all messengers who are thinking, oh, I should get back into the walking thing. If you actually set yourself a daily target, you get really pissed off when at the end of the day you look at your little thing on your phone and it, you've come under your target because you determine the next day to do it. So, for example, I have to go to another shopping village to pick up my dry cleaning later this afternoon. I'm going to walk there because I need to get these Ks under my belt before the end of the month. So, look, Have I can't been... say yet whether I've failed my goal of the month because I've still got a couple of days to go till the end of February. But, well, look, potties, what can I say? You'll just see me walking around the suburbs of Melbourne for the next three days. <laughs> just saying my my February average is 6.1 Ks. A day? That, yep. Oh, no, that's very no, good. Yeah, six point one k's a day. Which, that's great. But that's that's and when I go and work out with the local gym group, which I'm now back doing, I don't have a Fitbit or a phone, so probably even more, Corey. Mm. So that's why I'm saying because you, I don't think, have bought anything in the month of February. Um. Oh, I, well, no, not not clothing. No. Is, yeah. So we should. We I should have bought a lot of paraphernalia. I bought a lot of green and white cushions the other day for wedding matters. I but, offered um, you my green and white cushions. Yeah, we might have to take you up on that because Jen's just found another outdoor sofa to stick in the garden. So we might need it. Now, now we've got a lot to talk about today. Um, we'll have a brief chat about the AFL and drugs. I want.
want to talk to you about gossip columns pertaining to the Herald Sun. Speaking of which, did you see that Mark Knight's cartoon of Serena Williams was cleared by the Australian Press Council this week? No, I didn't. And he was very happy, but um, a lot of American journos are not. That's a different story. You've got a book. I've seen yet another film. And you have a wonderful recipe that you've been promising for some time. There's a fair bit to talk about. But, Corrie, I want to open our discussion about the Oscars in saying this is an uncanny coincidence. It's almost spooky. 30 years ago, almost to today, the Oscars film Driving Miss Daisy won Best Picture. Bizarrely, a lovely little film about a black person and a white person solving race relations on a road trip. It beat films like, well, it beat Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors, which is a very good film, but it beat Spike Lee's first classic and the one they say is still his best ever film, Do the Right Thing, which he actually referenced in a speech last night or the other night at the Oscars when he accepted his um, award for, I think, Best Director. He certainly won an no, award. No, not Best Director, Best Original Screenplay best original. For, for Black Klansman. Sorry, and as you know, my views about Black Klansman. It was the film of the year, I, I felt. I, and I was quoting you last night as we were watching the telly, Caro. But incredibly, Caro's favourite film. 30 years later, another road trip about a black person, a white person, solving race relations. A lovely film, beautifully acted, really enjoyed it in Green Book. Again, beat Spike Lee. Now, people say Black Klansman is not as good as Do the Right Thing. I absolutely loved both of them. And I just can't believe the coincidence that, the, look, the Oscars often get it wrong, but boy, did they get it wrong this year. Well, I think, I, I thought the production levels of this show were lame. I thought the dresses were disappointing, a few exceptions. I thought that the, apart from a few highlighted moments, remember when Gloria Swanson said it wasn't me that got smaller? I I, I didn't get smaller. I Something about the pictures got smaller, not me, you know, in that film Sunset Boulevard. That was how I've, every time a big star came out, like that amazing duet with Lady Gaga and um, the other star of A Star Brad is Cooper. Born, Brad Cooper, sorry, which, is, which was unbelievable. When Barbara Streisand came out, when Julia Roberts came out, you went, oh, yes, that's what stardom is all about. There just wasn't enough of that, Corrie. It was lame. Maybe we're getting older. No, I don't think so. I agree okay, that so, the young... So what are your thoughts about the Oscars not having a host this year? Weak, gutless... Why? Almost like saying it's all too hard. I mean, I thought when the three girls came out at the beginning, they were hilarious. They, were they hilarious. should have carried the show. Why didn't they just host the whole thing? Well, I don't know, Carrie. That's what's so interesting. It does seem to be. Oh, I thought the women were great. Uh, Tina Fey and um, oh, what's her name? Um, gone out of my head. Amy Poehler and Maya. Uh, Rudolph, I think her surname is. Uh, you know, they, could, rather, they could have carried the show. It wasn't that on her dress, but no. But it, dresses aside, and Cara, someone let's look said, at that. Let's look at the talent. Got, oh, they were is, really. They I don't want to funny. diss you, but someone said Tina Fey looked like she was in a Mother of the Bride outfit. <laughs> oh, I'm a Mother of the Groom. That's a bit different, and I won't be wearing a dress like that. But the three of them carried it really well. They were they were, they were excited to be there. They were daggy. They were funny. They bounced off each other really well. Let the three women be the hosts. What's so wrong about? throwing the copybook out that says you've got to have one host who cracks gags and follows a formulaic approach. Haven't These Tina and Amy done it, it before? They, or did they host? I think they hosted the Oscars. Yeah. I don't think they have hosted the Oscars. Or maybe they hosted the Golden Globes. They've hosted something. Look, there were some highlights and some lowlights, and certainly uh, the, the, the movie that won Best 
picture has been criticised by a number of people, particularly in the American, uh, the African American community, because it's not. It seems to be that, and I haven't seen the film you have, but the focus is more on the white driver rather than the black pianist. You know, well, Viggo Mortensen yeah. is the star of the film, and he was pipped for the best actor by. And you know, I did predict this when I saw it, Corey. I yeah. did say Rami Malek would win the Oscar, but David Stratton did too. So. Oh, David. Uh, but look, just on the matter of Queen and Rami Mark's amazing win, and he, gosh, he makes a really good speech too. It was fantastic to have Queen kick off the Oscars. I thought that was great. We Who almost was the slipped into. Oh, his name is Adam Lambert, and he won American Idol a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and he was officially asked by uh, Queen when they would do uh, when they do concerts. He's been asked to be take Freddie Mercury's place, so he has been with Queen for a few years. So really probably a little bit unfair. Maybe he's not a great actor, but it was a bit unfair that perhaps he wasn't asked to play Freddie actually in the film. However, it, when it started, it, it was great. It was fantastic. It was great to see Brian May and Roger Taylor the do, opening, doing their I stuff. I agree the opening was brilliant. But I felt like I was watching the Grammys and I said to Coco, God, this is just like the start of the Grammys. This is amazing. It's kind of great, but it's so non-Oscar. Oscar, Oscar to me is usually... Billy Crystal doing a rundown of all the movies or or Whoopi Goldberg flying in from, you know, I remember when she did Elizabeth I and she yep. came, down, came down from the ceiling dressed as in Elizabethan costume. I thought, was it Melissa McCarthy who did the costume? Yeah, she that, was that hilarious. Was that was um, so some highlights for me, Cara, Bette Midler singing the lullaby from Mary Poppins Returns, looking for the place where the lost things go. Oh, but Corrie, that what was happened beautiful. to Mary Poppins? <laughs> what was Mary? That was the only was Oscar no Mary, Mary Poppins. Poppins was not, I know there was no Mary Poppins. They got a few technical noms and nothing else. I, I really enjoyed um, Congressman and Civil Rights Leader John Lewis, uh, who was who was giving one award, and or actually no, he wasn't. He was, he was presenting. Uh, when they were going through the films of the year, the nominees, and he presented Green Book. And he talked about, I can bear, he must be in his 80s now, he's a, he's a contemporary of Martin Luther King, and he said, I can bear witness that the portrait of that time and place in our history is very real. It is seared in my memory. Uh, and then, of course, another highlight, which again, as she was at the BAFTAs, Olivia Coleman's speech was hilarious. She was great. It's genuinely quite stressful winner. being here. And then she goes, this is hilarious. I've got an Oscar. I hope the kids are watching. This is not going to happen again, kids. You know, <laughs> and when, really when, she, when she gave the raspberry, when they told her yeah, to wind, wind up. it up, that was funny. And she got a standing ovation, which is great. I loved seeing lots of Mexicans and Latino Americans. I think that was very pointed. And lots of African Americans winning awards. I think that was also very pointed. Oh, but Corrie, how seriously do they all take themselves? I'm sorry. That woman who went banged on about I believe in myself because A, B. It seemed like she spoke for 10 minutes. For yeah, God's and sake, also you won Gaga. an Oscar for set design. You know, and Gaga, honestly, her speech for Best Original Song, if I hear her say one more time, I'm here because of hard work, I'm going to throw up. I mean, everybody's there because yeah. of hard work. I know we're Australians and people say we're cynical and we've got tall poppy syndrome, but I thought the majority of the speeches were overloaded pap. It was just embarrassing. That that set designer woman, I'm sorry, you've won the Oscar for Best Set Design. You haven't sort of, you know, created um, a cure for cancer. I just thought that when o so many of the speeches were me triumphing against the odds, you know, it was just... I, th I think, um, what's her name, um, Gwyneth Paltrow has got a lot to answer for, ever since she sobbed in that beautiful pink strapless dress. Didn't you feel, wasn't it just nauseating, all those? Well, I, well, 
I, it, look, it was nauseating, and oh. I thought it was very politically correct. A lot of oh. the a lot of the wins were very politically correct, and I would I would dispute some of the some like Mary Poppins. Where was that show? You know, I can't and, believe they were and the favourite. The favourite hardly won anything, but I did love. It was very refreshing to see genuine excitement. That really excited husband wife team. The, direct, the Israeli director, um, Guy Natty, I think is how you pronounce his name, and Jamie Ray Newman, his wife, and they won Best Short Film for their film Skin. And they got up and they just shrieked. She was over the, she was so over the moon, it was infectious, and I thought that was really yes, off but, script. And but she could barely speak, Corrie. <laughs> <laughs> and I also thought it was badly edited. I thought, you know, there was sort of these weird, awkward pauses. Didn't you? I mean, there was so much. Um, so well, when, you see, that's when you need a host, Caro. That's actually when you need, you need a, a host. host. Yeah. When Brad and Lady Gaga got up, it was like, oh, thank heavens. This oh, is a genuine... And didn't Instagram go off, though? I know. Oh, are they in love, truly? Well, I mean, it was incredible. that chemistry. Look, I've got to say, I found more chemistry between them at the Oscars than I did in the movie. I mean, most people thought the chemistry was good in the movie. I didn't really buy it. I enjoyed the movie, and I thought she was fantastic, but... That was unbelievable. That was a beautiful rendition of what is a great song and a deserved winner. Well, look, Caro, anyway, just back on the controversial best picture uh, thing, I I do think, and I haven't seen it, and I can see it because it's on Netflix and I will win all of this craziness is over in the next few weeks. Roma. But Roma, you yep. see, it won Best Director, Cinematography, Best Foreign Language Film. It, it, it was nominated for so many awards and obviously the Academy still hasn't come to terms quite with Netflix and its role in our space. This is the first time that a Netflix movie has been nominated for and, and won What BAFTA's did Tina Fey say? Sort of what, now our dishwasher produces movies <laughs> or something. That That's true. Remember we spoke about this and why a lot of good films are disappearing because they're on Netflix. Yeah, but-, but I think it's time the Academy actually just said, come on, we have to just get this chip off our shoulder. Roma clearly should have won Best Picture. I, as I said, I haven't seen it. People People I know who have seen it say it's remarkable. Love to hear what the potties think if anybody has seen it. Well, I, I will be watching yeah. it soon. Well, um, Black we... Klansman should have beaten it too. But one one thing on um, Roma, if they'd given it to Roma, wouldn't that be like you awarding the Miles Franklin to a book that only you know is printed on uh, arrives on Kindle? I mean, it's almost like the Academy saying don't go to the movies. I think there would, would have been politics. But definitely. It, well, yes, but you can also argue that a movie is a movie is a movie. So a book is a book is a book. So, uh, really, you know, like if, if it's if 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 the forum for the movie presentation is Netflix, does it really matter that it's not in a cinema in the traditional well, way? Yes, according to my local cinema man, who I was complaining to, you know, how I always complain to him that you know why doesn't he, he have this? He film, sees you film? coming and he runs a mile. <laughs> and he, the other night went oh, and how anyone, although the supporting actress. From that film, if Bill Street could talk, she was good. The woman who played the mother, but you know, you as have you, it in for that. Oh, film. it was a dreadful film. Lee Patch and the Herald Sun gave it four stars. What was he thinking? Anyway, um, I complained. <laughs> I said, "Oh, that was disappointing." He said, "Oh, really? Most people liked it." I said, "Why haven't you got Roma?" He said, "Because I'm not allowed to." I think Brighton, the cinema in Brighton in Victoria, had it on briefly, but then they had to remove it because it was a Netflix-only film. Anyway, look just quickly, Corrie. What did you think of all the pink? There's no quickly when we get to outfits, Caro. I'm going to go on for a while about this. Okay, <laughs> here here are my thoughts about the fashions. Uh, obviously, there was a nod to the 50 years since man walked on the moon because we saw lots of uh, kind of um, sequiny, glitter, tight 
uh, almost like astronautical spacewalking sort of gear, the big um, Jane Jetson sort of col- um, shoulder pads, you know, very straight. Um, Rachel Weiss, what lots was that? Of, lots that of high neck Rubber thing. Yeah. She must have died of the head. I loved her hair lots and her skirt, but something went horrid, horribly wrong. Lots of wrong high necks top. and long sleeves and shoulder pads with the don't mess with me, which is obviously a rub off of hashtag me too, because the Hollywood women are sick of probably showing bosoms or this is not the appropriate year. I don't mind a bit of bosom, but there was not a lot there the other night. A couple of um, outfits to mention. My favourite was Charlize Theron, backless grey, high neck, long sleeve with the angled white shoulders and it was all out at the back. She had her, it was a bare back. It was absolutely stunning. And what a, she is just a chameleon, that woman. She's obviously in another part in another film. She's got bobbed brunette hair with very kind of pale skin, pale makeup look. She looked fantastic. And yet we've seen her as the bombshell blonde with long blonde hair. She's amazing. Brie Larson looked good. Um, Lady Mm. Gaga... Not sure. I thought it. I thought it did work in the end. The black taffeta with the crossover back. Oh, and the neck, uh, the Cartier necklace. Yeah, and and the sort of the singlet type front and the wide waistbands. There were lots of wide waistbands, which is interesting. And those diamonds she was wearing. My God, uh, Julia Roberts. Now, when you get onto pink, Carrie, there she was got a lot my of hot pink. Julia, Julia and Helen Mirren got my vote. Yes, so they both a lot, looked beautiful. So Julia had that hot pink. I love that pink, Carrie. Hard colour to wear. Really hard Didn't she look beautiful, just generally? Absolutely stunning. And she must be 50 now, I guess. I guess. And what about Helen Mirren in the tangerine and the pink? Oh, well, look. Oh, I love that hats, dress. Hats off to women in their 70s. She and Bette Midler. Bette, Bette in that beautiful floral dress, in, which was sort of red, white shades. That was very blue. you, I thought. Oh, well, I know. That could be a good mother yeah. of the groom dress. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought Bette just looked beautiful and so did Helen Mirren. They're both 73, Cara, so there's something to aim for as we get older. J-Lo, as always, looked great. High neck, long sleeve sequins, but they were big sequins, which I think has made the difference. The Beale Street could talk Lady Regina King. Now, very few people can carry off a white dress, but a white dress with a split that goes right up to your thigh, and it's strapless. It's a and it's a Grecian kind of folding thing, very hard to carry off. She looked amazing, I thought, in that dress. Not not a dress I'd ever want to wear, but I just thought she carried it off brilliantly. Um, and uh, Danae Guerrero, who's in Black Panther, she looked absolutely beautiful. Carol, you're going to accuse me of being Hawthorne biased here because it was a dark gold fabric with a brown trim, which actually, as I'm describing it, sounds bloody shocking, like the Hawthorne football mm. jumper. But it did really, really work for me. And, of course, Richard E. Grant just won it hands down with the men because he had the red crushed velvet suit blazer, which he teamed with a little silver waistcoat. I thought he looked great. Yeah, no, I, I, and I thought he, he was he was brilliant in Will You Ever Forgive Me? And he was sort of probably unlucky to lose it to that wonderful actor who played Dr Shirley in... Um, uh, Green Book. But overall observation, I thought the fashions were hugely disappointing. And final observation from me, they might be great actors and they might make great films, but as a core, as a group, they're not great dancers. Did you see them all bopping away at the beginning? Oh my Lord, it was so daggy. I mean, Glenn Close wasn't bad, but all the others just, they haven't got the moves at all, a lot of those people. Do you know, we, we said this last year, Caro, and it was true again last night. I just, I, I'm I'm, I have a fondness for the days when you'd have Jack Nicholson sitting in the front row with his Ray-Bans on. I miss Meryl. 
Where's Meryl? Why isn't oh, well, she in some front row somewhere? Well, she probably just had. She's probably off making a movie. But you know, Warren Beatty with his you know funny little overworked face trying to smile through well, the plastic I think, I think surgery. That is a bit our age because Glenn was up close and personal. Pardon the pun. And Spike Lee, who said later, bad call sitting at the front when you don't win. He was. He had the. He sands. was hilarious. Oh, he cracked the sands at the end though. He was furious, and you know, really, Roma had every right to be just as upset as he did. So. Um, anyway, the Oscars have come and gone for another year. They need a new director. They need now a new producer. Now we can producer. just look forward to the Logies, Caro. No, oh, <laughs> Corey, please. Ever since, I mean, the final straw was them we leaving Melbourne. We dissed them last year. Last year, that's for sure. I mean, really, Brisbane? Sorry. That, I mean, that was a bad call last year. Now, Corey, I don't know where you stand on gossip columns generally, but I'm wondering about how you feel when you pick up a newspaper and you read, as we did last week in a column, I think it was by Alice Costa, about an unnamed AFL legend and his unnamed badly behaving wife and their... Well, that, that's well, Alice's words, not your words. That I mean, I, I don't understand why. There, there, there's been... Uh, this time, Lano, this, the legend is, ha- is having marital issues. Yes, and two years ago there was a similar story about an AFL. I think he was called an AFL or uh, an AFL stroke club. No, I think it was just an AFL senior person um, and an alleged affair. Now this went on on and off in the Herald Sun. This previous one about the alleged affair and arriving at some house and the boyfriend arriving home or something, another AFL person arriving home and the other AFL person sneaking out the back gate. This flummoxes me that they do this and they don't name the person. Now, they flummoxes, must... flummoxes you that the AFL people are sneaking in and out of windows? No, the, or flummoxes the Herald you Sun write about it. To about me, it. you name and shame or you don't write about it at all. I don't like this who is the, you know, unnamed gent or who is the, you know, those sort of... Yeah. I don't, I don't like it. Now, there's a story that most people who follow AFL closely who are within the industry know about this marital issue that's been going on for some time, for quite a long time. But I don't know why the Herald Sun, if the marriage is broken up, they decide to write about it, fine. You know, I, personally, it's not really my bag. But to, to not name someone when is the marriage in a state of flux? Has it broken up? You know, yeah, the story well, is was, it has. I, I was really interested when you texted me about this yesterday and I was thinking about, I made a couple of notes because it is a really good journalistic dilemma, this, because it's kind of, on one side you've got, which you, which are premises that you and I follow, this is what we grew up with. The core ethics of good journalism are among other things, are accuracy, telling the truth and being fair, right? So is it possible to do an ethical gossip column? That's the question. So if you and yep. I were editors of The Age, and you and I, I think, are pretty ethical, how would we go about – because the issue is that people love gossip. And increasingly, I think, in this social media-driven world, increasingly. And what's what's also interesting, Caro, that in yours and my time in journalism, it seems that we've gone from – maybe 30 years ago or 20 years ago, great gossip columns like News Diary in the Age, In Black and White, um, Spy in the Sunday Age. Yeah, Spy in the Sunday Age, which Laurie Money used to do. Even back further, Hedda Hopper, Nigel Dempster, Tucky and the Spectator, who's still going around. They used to focus on 
not just movie stars and television stars, but they will talk about captains of industry. They talk about politicians. They talk about society matrons. I remember Jill Gray used to write that story, that, that column in, the, in the age, in the know with Jill Gray, which actually is something my father started, uh, you know, doesn't have a place, I suppose, in 2000 and not, 2019, but certainly back in 1974. Was that, was, that was pretty bitchy and that did a bit of unnamed stuff. Too. Yeah, but, but, but it was always, she would always, or whoever it was, Laurie Money would often go back to the people he was writing about and say, look, I've heard this, you know, can you say yay or nay to Ron Walker or to Lloyd Williams or Susan Sangster or whoever he was writing about at the time. It seems now that journalists are just not bothering to make the call and when they get a little bit nervous, they'll remove the name and they talk about the unnamed sources. Now, of course, Nigel Dempster's been doing that for years. Jill Gray did that a bit too. I'm sorry, she did. Well, yeah, point taken, but, but... but I just feel that there was a, a, a chain of command with these things, and columns were gossip columns were written with just a little more of an eagle eye, particularly editors and lawyers. And now they, they now it just seems that journalists are, are, are just throwing names around and throwing scenario around without ever kind of backing it up, and making the reader work and speculate, which could actually draw into the equation some completely innocent people. Well, that, that's a bit that I don't like. I mean, I think Alice Costa, I don't doubt her bravery because I know she, um, she, I know she's confronted people. I remember she confronted Gary Lyon once um, or several times during um, the time that his marriage was in trouble or when he started seeing Nikki Brownless. But I, I think that this is very strange. Now, obviously, she has very good information and obviously this is based on stuff, as the previous one was. But what they tend to do at News Limited is they go the full circle. So they start the rumour in the paper without naming the people. Then they get someone on another um, News Limited-related show or something on Fox Footy or Foxtel and they ask said person, who by this time has a name, about rumours surrounding his or her private life. So The rumour has started at News Limited. You've started the rumour and now you're finishing. It's quite an extraordinary – and one of the victims of one of these rumours – I, I rang them and said, look, what are you going to do about this? You know, and they knew obviously what was going on and they were pretty concerned. And in one case, even thought about walking away from the game, from a very senior role in the game. And I said, well, what do you go? Should you just come out and deny it? And they said, well, that's like coming out and saying, you know, I'm not beating my wife or... I'm yeah, not. I'm right. not gay, which is not, nothing wrong with that. But they weren't suddenly, gay. You know, suddenly the story becomes the fact that you said not. <laughs> it, it, it's a very strange. I mean, I remember filling in for Tatler once for Lawrence Money or Spy when we were on the Sunday Age together, and Lee Matthews' first marriage had broken up, and he'd started going to church. And someone at the Sunday Age had told me about this, so I rang him and asked him the question, and he confirmed it all and got a bit upset. Then he rang me back and he asked me not to write about it and said there was a lot of hurt and blah, blah, blah. And we worked out, oh, we've cut some sort of deal where, well, not really a deal, but something was written, but it was very low key. And he always felt, he was a bit funny towards me for quite a while. But I mean, it was sort of out there. It was a big public story at the time. Um, he was coaching a football club. It just, at, at the time, I remember that it was public knowledge and that the divorce or the it had gone through, but does it? But if, I thought if, if I did say to myself, never again. I'm not going to write about someone's it, marriage. But if breakup. it doesn't affect people with whom the legend is working, 
whether they're club-related or business-related or anything like that, if there is this marriage breakdown or relationship breakdown, why do we have to know about it? If there are no public stakeholders who are going to be affected by the actions of this person, why do we need to know about it? Titillation. I just, I still can't fathom it. And thank goodness you were asked to fill in for Lawrence Money and not me because I would have found that absolutely terrifying. Yeah, oh, well, it's never pleasant. But I mean, my, my view has always been you've just got to make tough phone calls in this job. And, you know, that's, that's you know, the best, the best stories come from those phone calls. But that was not enjoyable. And I just sort of decided never again. I know the rumour file made a decision years ago on 3AW that they would address pretty much everything but marriage breakups. I, I think that's really sensible because, because there are yep. children involved. There are parents, parents-in-law. There are whole layers of the onion when marriages break down. Cara, while we're on footy, I wanted to uh, give you a little bouquet here because you have already started the football rolling, as it were. You've cracked the agenda and everybody seems to be following. And was it on this podcast or was it on another radio program that you might have mentioned something about drugs and football? Well, look, look, this is a, um, it's a, it's been a sleeping giant in the AFL landscape for and a long time. And feel free to pat yourself on the back, Carol. I know you don't normally do oh, that, but let's give it a go for oh, once, co- shall set, we? Settle down, Corrie. No, look, I'm, I'm, I went back on radio um, the, in the last week or two and just said that the clubs are up in arms about this AFL drugs code. And it was interesting that um, I had lunch with someone senior from the AFL a day or two later and they said, oh, I heard your comments, but, you know, you know this drug this drug code that we have is voluntary. The players don't have to do it. You know, no one has a solution. And I said, well, look, I've got a solution. It's got to be tougher. Basically, what has happened um, since we spoke about it on Sports Day um, on 3AW, I think about 10, 12 days ago, was that um, the AFL have now said they're reviewing the two strikes policy. Jeff Kenner has come out again. I mean, Jeff's solution is ridiculous. He wants either zero tolerance or um, no real policy at all. No, no sort of rigidity around taking drugs at all. Nick Revolt's come out and said players are taking the PI double five or whatever you call it out of the drugs policy because they know it's a mental health model and they hide behind the mental health thing to say that if, if you say you have mental health issues, you don't get a strike ahead of you. The AFL has sold this new policy on the fact that it's two strikes, not three, so it looks tougher. In fact, it's a lot more lenient. And it just comes down to this really... Um, the nub of the argument is, if you're an AFL footballer, should you be allowed to take drugs like journalists are? And, you know, I would argue that there's a health message we're selling here. You're earning a lot of money. You're getting massive millions and millions of dollars from broadcasters, but also from governments who are paying for stadiums. And I think that the AFL really has to go ha- hand in yeah, hand and show some leadership here. So I sniff some changes in the breeze. And I think that... Um, and who do you think is going to lead the charge, Caro? Will it be will it be the AFL executive or will it be they'll have to and the commission because um, the players association continue to say there's nothing wrong if it ain't broke don't fix it I think there is too and and you know every all young people in society are taking drugs you know get used to it I don't really buy that I do raise my eyebrows at Jeff Kennett who last time he was president of Hawthorne the club had the only player ever to be caught on three strikes Travis Tuck who was later emerged to have terrible um, mental health issues. I think he was suffering from some form of depression. Um, he ended up leaving football and the clubs are continuing to say we should have the power, which is what the players don't want or their association. We should have the power to deal with this, not the players' union. And um, 
Jeff Kennett was running beyond blue. Hawthorne was a top club in the AFL, and yet they had no idea that they had a player, apparently, with all these issues. So I'm not sure the clubs are as well-equipped as they say, but... It's fascinating. Well, I'm glad you started the ball rolling on that because I think they do have to toughen up. These I, guys are role models. That's the beginning and the end for me. I guess so. I guess so. Um, yeah, look, I, I just think uh, the older I get, the more drugs terrify me. And I think AFL clubs should show leadership here and their players, particularly with the scourge that's just absolutely killing country towns around Victoria and New South Wales and Queensland. And they should be, and they're footy clubs, footy clubs in these towns. You know, the players, as a group, that these clubs have terrible drug problems. And if we have senior people like, you know, Lou Hod- Luke Hodge and Nick Revolt preaching the message to these young kids who are playing footy in much smaller communities, then maybe, you know, that will resonate across, oh, totally. across regional Victoria It'll and New like South a, Wales. It'll be a little stone in a pond. I'm sure it will have a ripple effect. Caro, uh, I want to jump in on Crush of the Week because I know that for as soon as the football season begins for the next 20-odd weeks, you'll probably have various Richmond footballers in your <laughs> well, Crush of the sorry. Week. <laughs> so I'm going to grab this segment Although while Jack I Revolt can. has been impressive in recent times. Go on. So my Crush of the Week, there are actually 58 of them. They are a bipartisan group of 58 former senior national security officials of uh, the American political system. And on Monday, they issued a statement saying that there was no factual basis for President Trump's proclamation of a national emergency to build a wall on the US-Mexico border. Hooray! Somebody's come out. I mean, the poor old Democrats have been on their own with this one, and no Republicans. They're weak, weak, lily-livered, silly people they are. Nobody's come up and said, actually, we don't think the president is correct. But suddenly we have 58 former senior national security officials on both sides of the parliamentary sphere, Caro, from former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, former Defence Secretary Chuck Hagel, uh, and there are assorted Elliot A. Cohen, who worked with President George W. Bush, Thomas R. Pickering, who worked with President George H. W. Bush, John Kerry, of course, who was Obama's Secretary of State, Susan Rice, Obama's National Security Advisor. These heavy hitters have said there is no call to use US government funding in this way for this wall. Hooray, hooray. So they have finally had had the courage as a group to stick their head, heads above the parapet and say, President Trump, enough is enough about this national emergency to build a wall. They are my crushes of the week. And very, I'm sure they're very happy to be my crush. Very <laughs> impressive, and wor- impressive and worthy crush. Now, it's time for BSF, Corrie, and you have a book. I do. Now, this is a terrific book for people who love war stories, art history, and general spy and skullduggery. This book is called Saving Mona Lisa, The Battle to Protect the Louvre and Its Treasures from the Nazis. Now, you probably saw that wonderful film with George Clooney years ago, yep. Monument Men, Monuments yep, Men. Loved it. Uh, this is actually where this story. This is this is before that story kicks off. This is the story by a journalist called Jerry Chanel, G E R I. So it's a she, and she talks about this amazing World War Two story of how the how French museum officials prevented Germany from plundering or destroying the Mona Lisa and other valuables of art that uh, that were inside the Louvre in Paris. 
So, of course, imagine, Caro, the germ, the Nazis have crossed the border. They're yep. heading toward Paris. And the curators and the deputy director and the director at the Louvre are going, what are we going to do? Because, of course, everyone knew that Adolf Hitler had a grand plan to build this amazing art museum in Germany. And every bit like Napoleon um, a couple of centuries earlier, wherever he went, he would plunder the art. So this extraordinary campaign involving hundreds of French people, not just curators, museum staffs and art aficionados, but also the general public and later the partisans, were the plans to hide and save thousands of artworks from wartime hostilities. It actually began in the 1930s when they saw fascism was spreading and Hitler, the rise and rise. But by the time the war broke out, they had to get these masterpieces out of Paris. Oh, my goodness. It is such a fantastic story. The hero of this is a man called Jacques Jugard, who was the deputy director of the Musée Nationaux, and he emerges as the central character of this book. He was a self-effacing, rather humble civil servant who was absolutely and utterly dedicated to his treasure chest at the Louvre on behalf of the French people, but in, in, in fact, on behalf of culture the culture of the entire world he saw it his mission to save these treasures including the Mona Lisa the Venus de Milo the French crown jewels thousands of other items and he basically with the help of French people who loaned their trucks hundreds of trucks came to the Louvre almost in a two-week period they packed up all of these artworks shipped them off to the Loire Valley, to the homes and castles of French people who said, yes, you can store them here. And then, of course, as the Germans started to head toward Paris and the, and the area around the Loire Valley was being bombed, they then had to move them into to the west toward Vichy, France. This is an incredible story. And the other incredible thing about it is that a lot of big Jewish collections, um, this wonderful man Jacques Chajard knew that they would be in danger of being plundered and stolen by the Nazis. He also brought them into the Louvre. Everything was catalogued under the names of the families and so many hundreds of Jewish uh, treasures were also saved. It's an incredible book. I really recommend it. Jerry Chanel as a journalist has a fantastic writing style and uh, if you have a book club, if, you, if you're in a book club potties and your book club particularly likes nonfiction and there's a bit of an art bent amongst your members, this is a wonderful book because it does raise lots of themes and issues. And I learned so much about this. Great book. And it's only twenty nine ninety nine. That sounds fantastic, Corrie. Saving a, Mona Lisa. This has become a sort of genre for several films and TV series. And um, it's a fascinating sort of previously uninvestigated part of um, World War Two and what the Germans were planning to do. So thank you for That's that That's right. And, and if you want to know where Mona Lisa spent most of the war, it was in, a, in it was an upstairs bedroom in a small chateau in western France. Oh. And, and she, that... she was in it. She was in a castle and uh, the Germans were approaching and they feared not only uh, they not only feared the Nazis might actually occupy this castle, but there was they had a problem with moist and damp. See, that was the other thing too. How do you store all these treasures without them being damaged? So they moved it to this small little small chateau where the warmest, best room in the house was actually the upstairs bedroom. And the old couple who, who looked after her said, you know, it was just like having one of our children. Oh, remember that wonderful um, film about the blind French girl, All the Light We Cannot, cannot See? Cannot See, yeah, book. Which yes. was a, a, turned sorry, into a book, film, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely It's being brilliant. turned into a film, yeah. Um, now, Caro, you have a film. I've been to the movies and I saw Stan and Ollie, which... Oh, yes! 
Yes. Is a wonderful... With Steve Coogan. Steve, Steve Coogan and John C. Riley in a fat suit um, playing Oliver and Hardy. Um, look, this is a, it's a small film. It's a BBC Films production. It is a wonderfully acted story about basically set around their reunion tour in post-war England when their star was well and truly waning and they were ageing. It is a really affectionate portrait of this wonderful duet that it, it opens with a, scene, with a scene, filming scene in Hollywood from their last truly successful smash hit movie. Um, they then went on to split up because um, Hal Roach, who was sort of their um, famous um, Svengali, I suppose, fell out with the Steve Coogan character. and um, Stan Laurel. Yes. And um, he... Um, he left the studio and Ollie, um, Babe, went on to make, um, as they call it, the elephant movies, Zenobia, with another pe- partner and it was it just Never flopped and they had this awful falling out and it, look, the tension So this of, is the story of the falling out? Well, right? it's more the story of them, their friendship and them doing this reunion tour in post-war England. So picture dark, seedy hotels, um, small... German blitzes. No, because it's post-war. Oh, okay. Sorry, um, small, post-war. small theatres. No blitzes. That, but you know, then, then the tour, then the, then they start. The tour starts to take off, and they actually agree to do all this publicity. They have to really lower themselves, and you know, judge local beauty contests, and you know, ham up a you know breakfast, you know, frying an egg contest, you know, something like that. It is just the most, and a lot of it is set in the Savoy Hotel. Um, which is when they when they finally get to London, there's talk of a Robin Hood movie that you know clearly so is never was, going to happen. It is just was Stan a wonderful and Ollie, story. Were they, were they true friends in real life, or was it a makeup thing like the monkeys? Oh, Valet Peter Talk by the it, way, it, who died. Yes, it was a makeup thing, but they became friends. It, it's like a love affair. It is the most beautifully acted film, and it's the most beautiful story. Their wives, who are both brilliantly portrayed as incredibly determined but loving partners to these two men, and they're a very big part of the film, um, are, are great in it as well. But it, it is just a wonderful story of a friendship and a love affair that endures. And people who've, I mean, David Stratton, you know, my doyen, gave it four and a half stars, but he's an Oliver, Oliver and Hardy fan. I'm not really. I don't, never really enjoyed that sort Stan, of humour. Stan Laurel was my paternal grandmother's favourite actor. Oh, look. My maternal grandmother's favourite actor was Gene Kelly. Yes. So there you go. Uh, we stuck a bit in yeah, musicals so, and old Hollywood. I don't Hollywood mind Gene Kelly, but anyway, it's a lovely film. I, I highly recommend it. You have a recipe, Corrie. I do. And, Caro, this is one my brother Steve cooked uh, over the summer holidays and brought to our house when he came for a sleepover. It's from Donna Hayes' Life in Balance. And this book, this cookbook came out a couple of years ago. Uh, this is the this was the one with the wonderful, amazing new photography and treatment. I love this cookbook so much, and this is on a page on page one hundred and ninety nine. And potties, we will have the recipe in Miss Jane's wonderful show notes, and it's called orange and sheer seed syrup cake. This is to die for. Remember, Yum. twenty years ago, we were all doing the Claudie Rodin orange cake where yep. you stuck the oranges the whole in the orange. Wizard, yeah, and, yep. and you, you put them in the microwave or you boiled them. Yep. This is a very similar taste, but it's a modern and slightly healthier version. So take note. Uh, I've got to be able to read this now. A quarter cup of or 50 grams of black chia seeds, half a cup of milk, 125 grams unsalted butter, one tablespoon of fine grated orange rind, one cup of raw sugar, 
220 grams that is, four eggs, two cups of almond meal, which of course is ground almonds for those who aren't familiar, one cup of white spelt flour, S-P-E-L-T, that would be the spelling there, one and a half teaspoons of baking powder, orange syrup, and then, uh, then sorry, and then you make the orange syrup, which is half a cup of rice malt syrup, two tablespoons of orange zest and half a cup of orange juice. If some of these ingredients seem a little bit odd to some of our Rice listeners, malt syrup, there's always, there's always a rogue ingredient, isn't it? Yeah, but, but you can find it. I thought, oh gosh, where like do you Karen find... Martini. Why do you find... Where do you find rice malt syrup? I went to Woolies and... Uh, there it was. There. So all of these things like chia seeds and so on, easy to find. A white spot flour, easy to find. You preheat the oven on 160, lightly grease a 20 centimetre round uh, cake tin, uh, do all the usuals, and then you place the chia seeds and milk in a bowl and set aside to soak for 10 minutes. That is very important, Caro. They have to absorb. Then you put the butter, orange rind and sugar in the bowl uh, with the electric mixer, whiz it up for eight minutes or until light and fluffy. And it did actually take a while. I thought eight minutes, that's ridiculous. It's like but you making a sponge. And then you add the eggs and you beat until well combined. You add the chia mixture, which was sitting in the bowl. You add the almond meal, the flour and the baking powder and fold to combine. Spoon the mixture into the prepared tin and bake for one hour or with my oven, which is a little bit unreliable, was one hour and a bit. Uh, And then, of course, you test it with a skewer to see if it's there. While the cake is baking, make the orange syrup. Now, this syrup you could use for many things, Cara. It was absolutely delicious. So it's put the rice malt syrup, the orange rind and juice into a small saucepan over a medium heat. Don't burn it like I did the first time round. Took my eye off it. You've got to simmer it for 12 minutes or, in my case, nearly 30. Forgot about it. Nearly burnt the pan. Oh, dear me. Had toffee. To ma- had to make Rice a- malt toffee. <laughs> Ruined the pan but had to make a new lot. So simmer for 12 minutes or until the syrup is reduced by half and it is thickened. And then, of course, you invert the cake onto the cake stand. And while it's still hot, pop the syrup on the top and serve it warm with ice cream or cream. It is a, it's an absolute winner. And the really good thing, Caro, is that a little bit is enough. You know, it's quite a rich cake. So a little bit is enough. And then you'll have plenty for, because uh, it, it's, it, I'm not, I'm, no, I'm not allowed to use the word moist. I know Annabelle Crabbe said we can't. I have use no the issue with it. You and Annabelle are the anti-moist people. No, no, I'm pro-moist. I think we should bring that word back. I'm going to use it now, again and again. So this beautiful moist cake stays like this, and it's really good for kids' lunches. So Miss Jane, you can pop that in Huey's lunchbox when he goes off to school. So that's from Donna Hay, Life in Balance. Thank you, Corrie. Um, you're sounding far too cheery, though, so I think it's time to be grumpy, and you're grumpy about something today. Uh, I'm grumpy about um, the some of the staff at Virgin in Sydney the other day when my daughter-in-law-to-be, little Lib, was flying down from Sydney with her wedding dress, and she and my son thought they had both booked Virgin or Qantas, but one actually had booked one and one booked the other. So she had her hand luggage plus this big covered wedding dress, which the dressmaker had said, please keep flat at all times. So if you can imagine, I'm sticking my arms out here and you can imagine this big, beautiful thing draped all over it, uh, incognito, but her arms were nearly killing her, went to the virgin desk, no one to help her, no one to help her through the, um, the security with the dress. So that proved itself to be an issue. Then she arrives at the virgin desk to check in, flight cancelled. 
By this stage, she is almost demented, and it's. I think she was catching a seven, a six or seven o'clock flight, and the next one was a ten. And she begged and begged, "Can I get on an earlier flight?" This particular staffer from Virgin was so unhelpful. Lib started to cry. No one came to her rescue. No one, even with a tissue. As she said, you know, eyes and nose running, no one even with a tissue. They see it so often at airports now. Every week there's a she horrible then, story. She like then, had this, to, then she had Shocking. to lie her wedding dress down on the ground to keep it flat. And then somebody, a lovely virgin person, took pity on her and said, we'll get you onto an earlier flight, which the other virgin lady had not said. Lib gets onto the early flight. She was assured she would be able to hang up her. They have, oh, no, sorry, no hangers on this flight. So she had to then, like, panicking, of course, what am I going to do with this dress? They, they, they One of the um, flight attendants said, well, once everybody's put their hand luggage up above, you can put it on the top of there. No one helped her put it up there. One nice person, I think, did. And then somebody came, she's watching this, watching this, waiting for them to close the door so the wedding dress is safe and secure. And somebody came along and put he put his bag on top of it. She nearly died. It just got worse and worse. Oh, but what was gosh. what we did talk about was the young girl, Lib was in a middle seat. The girl on the aisle seat did nothing to help her. A young girl, earphones in, nothing to help her. And as Lib said, the people who did help her, there was a lovely lady passenger who saw her crying, came to her aid. There were a few people along the way of this sort of two-hour horrendous journey. And as we said, isn't it funny how the people who help you are probably feeling good about it and probably said to people later in their family, oh, I met this poor girl with a wedding dress. It was so sad. She was in such a... And the girl who was the... The girls who have been the asshole in the story probably haven't even given it a second thought. No. So take that unhelpful people at Sydney Airport. You've just got to be so um, precise about your flights now because if you get something wrong or something goes wrong, there's no extra flights unless you're prepared to pay, you know, from Melbourne to Sydney about $700. They have you by the short and curlies, don't they? No, air travel is not what it used to be. Anyway, the end of the story is that thankfully that the wedding dress is okay. It's hanging up in Lib's wardrobe and um, we'll all see it in a couple of weeks, Caro. Now it's time for six quick questions, Corrie. What is your favourite Australian bird? Kookaburra. Oh, yes. Of course. Well, we, we've been talking about them all summer. Love they're them. Wonderful. And they spot snakes, so they're very helpful. Caro, why are you so disappointed with pin-up actor Richard Roxburgh? Because he's my hero, and I turned on my television last night, and to my horror, he was on a car commercial. I'm oh, sorry. Lordy. Of all the people, of all the people I would have thought, I'm sure he got lots of money, and I'm not begrudging him, but it just is not the same for me anymore, because to me, he's got more street cred than most Australian actors. You don't need the money, Richard. Really disappointing. What's the latest on Karl Lagerfeld's cat? Well, there's someone who, in the world who also doesn't need the money, and that's Choupette, the Berman cat who belonged to the late Karl Lagerfeld who died last week. Uh, Choupette, I gather, has inherited a fair bit of Karl's $200 million fortune, and um, so that sort of sets Ch- uh, Choupette up for life. Choupette is quite old, I gather, so I'm not sure where Choupette is intending for his or her wealth to go and who is going to inherit, but apparently that cat is now set up for life. So um, I haven't heard how Choupette is planning for the money or where the money will go afterwards. Uh, It is illegal, interestingly, Caro, to leave your money to an animal under French law, but because Karl Lagerfeld is a German citizen, Choupette can receive, oh, it's a her, Choupette can receive anything she wants. 
There is a Lagerfeld godson. I'm thrilled to hear that. I'm, I, I, <laughs> I can, can see I, you jumping out of your I know, skin. I'm really, um, to be honest, I'm banning this story from now on. I know you. I know I'm happy about Prince Philip and his driving, but I'm really sick of a Carl Lagerfeld's cat. Although That's it so is interesting mean. that you, you can go into all the. Um, Oh, what are the names? What's what's it? Chanel. Into every Chanel around the world, and there's a condolence book. My sister's been into the one in Sydney and signed the condolence book. Okay, you thought the cat story was crazy. Um, Caro, what's your favourite memory of this summer? Oh, look, so many. But I'm going to give You're you going to three. Say walking with me, walking with you, and just generally walking around the coastal parts of Victoria that I love was one highlight. Catching flathead on a fishing line in the middle of the bay on a very flat, warm morning was another highlight. Reading highlight, Boy Swallows Universe. It was definitely my book of the summer. Um, getting two, not one, but two seven-letter words in a game of Scrabble with you was another highlight. And just sitting on the grass overlooking the bay and drinking a glass of rosé with my husband and one of my daughters was another oh, highlight. Oh, life's tough. tough I know. Well, that's what the summer off-footy, should be. Off-footy season, isn't it? Well, I think, dare I say, I think I think you were involved in um, some quite nice summer memories too. Oh, so, I had some nice summer memories. Um, what's your... Um, oh, look, no, I want to ask you about the front page of The Australian last week because you went into meltdown on social media about the... Uh, the after Julie Bishop so resigned. So is this a question? What's the question? Why were you angry about okay. the headline which said with the click of her heels? Yeah. Okay, so I Julie got it. Bishop is heading home with or something. With the click of her heels, her place is back home. So I just went sexist bunkum, which a friend of ours, or Jane and mine anyway, Miss Jane and I have had the pleasure of Claire, Dr. Claire Wright's company on the book pod. And Claire first alerted this to me through her social media network. And I read it and just went, you know what, I don't care how clever that reference is to Dorothy in, you know, going home to Kansas in Wizard of Oz. It is sexist. The photograph of Julie getting out of the car, which was all leg, I just thought, really? Like, is there just not a better photograph? How many times have we seen photographs on the front page of male politicians getting out of a car? Not everybody's best moment. Usually there'd be a standing shot, you would think, not getting out of a car. No, the reason they've got her getting out of the car is because it's all leg. Now, maybe Julie likes that. That's fine. But do you know what? She is an eminent politician. She has served this country well. She's a former minister. She's a former deputy prime minister. And she deserves better treatment than that. I then went nuts, named Chris Dore, who was the editor-in-chief of The Australian, who's a former colleague of mine. He then responded within two hours, I might add. And he should be editing the paper. He's looking oh. at his messenger on Facebook. Oh, Corey. And he, I mean, responded, he responded in a private conversation, so I won't reveal it, but he was really like, get the joke, Corey. And I said, no, I'm sorry. Sexism is sexism. And that's what that front page was. I was in a rage about this. And all our Perth listeners who are Julie Bishop fans, uh, if you didn't see it, call it up. It was last, uh, whatever day it was after she'd resigned and have a look at that front page and you tell me whether you're not offended. All women, actually. All women around Australia. Well, see, I, I disagree. I wasn't offended. I think this well, is... Well, you're a... thick-skinned. No, no, it's got nothing to do... It's not nothing to do with being thick-skinned, Corrie. She was... She is a woman who has... Her, her image is one of a very stylish person. Um, the click of the heels with a reference to the red shoes. Caro, if somebody took that angle of but you getting is, out of a car, that's not appropriate. She looks fabulous. No, but if, regardless of that, you don't take you don't take a, you don't use on the front page a photograph of a former deputy prime minister getting out of a car. 
I've like, seen a lot of men getting out of cars in photographs. Oh, I, right. I don't you agree can bring with that. Some. That can be your homework. I will. And I also think that she has decided that she doesn't want, she wants to, I mean, maybe she will end up being an ambassador, but the, the, she did say that she, it's time to go home. So it was actually an accurate headline. And I don't think it then went on, because I then went on to read the article after I saw your post on Instagram. It's the Australian, which I don't always agree with, extolled well, of course they do. They're a liberal voting paper. That's their, their no, bent, no, their right they, wing. No, but they, they extolled her virtues as a politician, which was deservedly so. I mean, I, it's I disagree. The headline, Cara, it's the headline and it's the treatment. It's the treatment of the story. I don't. I think if, the, if another former deputy prime minister had resigned, he would have received better treatment than that. The whole It's the whole do-up that pisses me off, and that's just the old but editor. But I, I thought it was talking. an incredibly um, complimentary treatment of her career, and it, it, All it, legs, Caro. And it spoke the truth. And no responsibility. We'll agree to disagree. Um, Corrie. You, um, have a, you have a good local tip. And I think I do Jane have a good local tip. And so does Miss Jane. But I just want to follow up one from over a year ago. I told you that my favourite supermarket in the world and everyone should drive to Dramana to go to their IGA because it has a muscle machine. It has the best roast section. It it's is. Got Since you Italian put me on to this, Caro, I'm, I drive all around the bay to go to that um, IGA. It's the best. Last, last week in San Francisco, oh, somewhere in America, it was voted the world's best IGA. No. It is one of the best supermarket in the world. My God! Don't is say there I such don't a thing. No, will... the best IGA supermarket. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, but still, that's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Really impressive. So, so good local tip. It's a, gone. It's a bit sad if you live in Anglesey or something because you have to drive all around the bay or catch good the local. Ferry. If you live in Melbourne, it's worth a trip. Good local tip, gone global, and it's right opposite the beach. It's gorgeous. That's another good get for you. You've had two today. Very happy, you're, but I, you're on form, Dal. But I form. do have a GLT, and this is for people who are trying to drink less but love the ritual of the evening drink or cocktail. Um, I pay tribute to our dear friend Sal, Sal Loder, for this. One word, Corrie, seed lip. Seed lip, S-E-E-D-L-I-P. You can buy it at most grog shops. It's an alcohol-free gin substitute. It's got three different flavours. Go the citrus, drink it with soda or low-cal tonic. It is quite expensive. It's like as expensive as a bottle of gin and... It's really nice. Oh, okay. Well, and pretend I love, you're I love having a drink. Pretend you're having a gin and tonic, but you're not. That's my good local tip, Corrie. And I think it's time to go because we've been talking for far too long today. But Oscar episode, we probably knew that was going to happen. Please tell everyone to, particularly your friends and also your family, to subscribe to our podcast. Jane, you're going to give us a very quick tip before we go. We did actually get some uh, great info through from the Sacred Heart Mission, of course. Oh, hello, Sacred Heart. op shops. And for anyone who is doing the Marie Kondo thing and decluttering, they're actually running a thing called Mystery March in some of their stores around Melbourne, but I'm sure in other states there'll be similar things kind of happening. Uh, basically trying to remind people to donate, don't accumulate, dropping stuff off at the op shops. And some of the hub stores in Fitzroy, Bentley, St Kilda and Pran or Paran? I always say it wrong. I'm Paran, from Adelaide. Jane. Paran. <laughs> oh, that's so Adelaide. That is so Adelaide. They're having competitions and little events. Uh, this Saturday, the 2nd of March, celebrity stylist Elliot 
Gano. Gano. Gano is uh, going to be in one of the stores. So look, jump online to the Sacred Heart Mission and you can check out what is happening in your local op shop. They're going to be dressing up mannequins and giving people styling advice and styling tips. Oh, how and makeup. Yeah, how yeah. fantastic. I think it's in the one it's in the Sacred Heart one on Commercial Road just up from the Paran Market. Yeah, in the Paran store. Thank you, Jane. So send your feedback, comments, tips and suggestions to the Don't Shoot the Messenger Facebook page. Follow us on Instagram at Don't Shoot Pod. We're almost cracking the ton, Corrie, almost at a 1,000. And we tweet. Just follow at Don't Shoot Pod and you can email us feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Please subscribe to Corrie's Book Pod. We'll be releasing um, the next book club episode this Friday. Corrie and a special guest discuss Jane Harper's The Lost Man. And the next book club read is, Corrie? Uh, Middle England, Caro, by Jonathan Coe. Thank you, Miss Jane. Thank you, Corrie. And what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. Can I apologise for the ants all over the studio? <laughs> I haven't seen an ant. Just so those boys. No, they're running up my hand. I think they're coming they're up this They're from the side. ginger oh. lilies. I'm so sorry. Hi, this is Leanne Moriarty. Hi, I'm Anne Summers. I'm Jen Harper. Hello, this is Laura Tingle. Hi, I'm Marcus Suzak. I'm David Maher. Join me on The Book Pod. I hope you can join Corey Perkin and I on The Book Pod. And I think also people often completely underestimate if something is easy to read, they think that means it's easy to write and it's absolutely not. It's such a skill. Always, no matter how abstract the issue, you have to find the narrative and you have to find characters and around those you build the story. You know, some authors take a decade to write a book I would miss the meeting the readers. Subscribe to the book pod. Subscribe to the book pod in your favourite podcast app. Wherever you listen to podcasts.